0: i saw a joke about this and we need to lighten the conversation slightly and that is that uh ikea is putting out a new putin dining table that is 45 feet long and about uh as wa- i think it's like three feet wide so uh so that you can entertain your guests in the luxury that they've come to expect from the kremlin
1: yeah a lot of truth in there well <laughs>
0: Once more unto the preach, dear friends.
1: Else fill the wall up with our English dead.
0: Good mating, good good mating, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake and Jeff McClure. Uh, We are today bringing you uh, news on the economy, breaking, well, broken news? Broken news. Broken news on the economy. Right. Yes, um, we will try to tape it back together as much as possible to make it as uh, reasonably understanding. Now, wait a minute. You, you can't really, you can't have a reasonable understanding of economics, can you? An I'm unreasonable sorry. understanding of what's happening in the economic world. Yes. And we will bring to you uh, this uh, unreasonable and broken news in hopefully an entertaining and fun fashion. Um. But before we do that, we have to tell you other things called disclosures, because you you shouldn't be closing things. You should be disclosing them. Other people might call those openings. Mm. Not us. We call them disclosing. Would you please disclose the door? Certainly. (laughs) 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 All right. So first is that the personal wealth coach is not just this radio program. Or podcast depending on what you're listening to at the moment it's also the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm offering fiduciary investment advice to uh, our clients our clients because the the folks that are talking on here are part of that same organization now we're not paid to do this and we don't pay to do it well we don't the radio program the the program yes the, the yeah. fiduciary site And we can't offer fiduciary advice on the air because of privacy issues and such. Um, So if we're not paid to do it and we're not paying to do it and we can't offer fiduciary, what in the world are we doing on here? We're hopefully going to educate you, possibly entertain you. Um, We do pay for advertisements on the, the station for this radio program, but so does the studio.
1: We don't pay for the radio program, though.
0: Correct. And uh, they don't pay us. Correct. So what what it is, we have a partnership with them to advertise for the radio program. Um, and we've been doing this or some version of it since 1996. And basically, what we're saying there is this is not paid commercial advertisement. So we, we have gotten clients from this radio program. But that's not where we get the majority of our clients. In fact, it's a pretty small percentage of our clients. So it's not like we don't get benefit from this. It's just not the reason why we do it. I think if we can give some education to the world and it benefits them, we're going to benefit too. There. You want to get the next one?
1: We are an SEC-registered investment advisory firm. However... That doesn't imply that the SEC approves or disapproves of anything we're doing. It's just there are regulators and we're registered with
0: them. It doesn't imply that they approve of anything that we do, but it may imply that they disapprove of something.
1: Well, I'm sure they disapprove of a lot of things, but it doesn't imply that they approve or disapprove of any particular thing.
0: Correct. Yes, that is correct. have Just because we're registered with them doesn't mean that they like us any more than they like anyone else. They are... Similar in many ways to the IRS. Just because you pay them money does not mean they work for you.
1: Right. And uh, we also, I want to disclose, that the information we produce on this educational radio program that we give you is taken from sources we deem to be reliable. However, we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information, which is one of my favorite disclosures. It's kind of like my, our two favorite governmental agencies. Maybe there's three. Yeah, I think there's three governmental agencies, federal government, that we really like. The Bureau of Economic Analysis, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and the Census Bureau, because they're all bureaucrats, and we think it's really cool, and I would like to go visit them. I can just see whole floors of people sitting at desks in a dark room with green eye shades, very carefully writing things in ledgers.
0: I think you've maybe watched um, uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid too many times. Oh, those green yeah, eye shades were around for some reason. They're kind of hats with no tops, which right. makes people like us who are bald quite cold. Um, but uh, that's the, our definition of bureaucrats, and we're going to stick to it no matter what.
1: Yeah. So there. Well, I suppose we should move on to the markets then. Well, we can move on to another question from John. then.
0: All right. And this is a good one. The Swift System question. Um, yes. Do you want me to state the this, question and then you can answer it?
1: or His question is Is, is, a, is this a realistic challenge to the SWIFT system? And he sent us an article um, about all of the, the cutoffs that we're doing, the, including shutting down SWIFT, will further motivate China to boost the payments and reserve role of the yuan. Mm, not likely.
0: China's been really, really careful to keep the yuan sometimes referred to as the renminbi out of circulation outside of China. Why? For the reason that Russia is experiencing right now. Russia has moved rubles outside the country. It's holding assets that are denominated in rubles, but in other countries. It's also holding assets that are denominated in dollars outside of its country. And they did that thinking they'll have access to this next time sanctions are put on them. Because the last sanctions didn't prevent them from liquidating their foreign assets. What it says about uh, Russia in general, when they had all these assets outside of Russia, when they're knocked off the SWIFT system, okay, well then they should just fall back on their foreign assets and liquidate them and bring them home. Only the sanctions prevented them from doing that as well. And China doesn't want to be in that situation.
1: There's an interesting situation here. There's an interesting, if you dig deep into this subject, China has a transfer of payment system that has been touted by some people as being in opposition and in competition to SWIFT called the CIF. Um, I don't know, China right. is something. Can we time but, out
0: but, for... What is the SWIFT section? It's a, a system? It's a very... It's it's an old system from a time when it was used on a fax machine. It's a messaging system from one banking institution to another, letting them know that the transfer that's coming is for real. Hey, we're about to send you some money. Uh, or should, are you ready to receive it? And that allows the new bank receiving the money to say, hey, this is real money that we just received. The only people allowed to send me this message on this system are actual banks that say the money is actually coming. I can trust that this money has arrived.
1: And there's also money directly transferred through the SWIFT system by wire transfer. They're connected to each other. The Chinese have a CIF system, which I've read several articles saying, okay, that's going to go in competition with SWIFT. It's not. And let me explain why. In 2021, about 90% of the CIF transfers were authorized through the SWIFT system. In other words, CIF, which the Chinese have to transfer money, and particularly internal to China, isn't in competition with the SWIFT system. It's in addition to the SWIFT system, and the SWIFT system is the messaging system, as Jake just described, that allows the CIF system to work. Which means that Swift, which would, by the way is not a United States facility, it's in Belgium, right. isn't, it, well it is in the U.S. And, and it's a universal system, it works all over the world, and replacing it would require a lot of things to happen that aren't going to happen. For one thing, it would mean that, we, that the world would have to go off the dollar, and it literally there are no currencies in the world, including the euro, that compete effectively with the dollar dollars are secure they are steady valued we know exactly what they're worth to the second all over the world and there's a lot of them um there's just not any economy in the world that could support something like that including the chinese as jake mentioned earlier and i think this is very important the yuan or renminbi is not going to become the world reserve currency anytime in the foreseeable future for the simple reason that the chinese do not want free market activity on their currency because it could crush their system they saw in 1998 they saw what happens when you allow a currency to float free on the world market to be the world reserve currency or are in competition with the dollar when some very wealthy people managed to crash a lot of we called it the Asian contagion. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I hap- a lot of currencies.
0: I happen to know some of those people in, involved and had have had some conversation. Nobel Prize winners uh, involved with that catastrophe that destroyed uh, for a short period of time the buying power of the ruble. It took out the Thai bot. Uh, most of the Asian currencies went under. The Chinese didn't because they didn't have their money available to be bought on the foreign exchange market. And they recognized there's a problem there.
1: There's a little caveat here. Yeah, we have a lot of debt floating around in the world. But a lot of that debt, not all of it, but a really big portion of the debt we have floating around is used effectively as reserves and currency across the world. It's used to buy things. As a matter of fact, every dollar that's issued by the United States government through the Federal Reserve Bank is a is actually a debt. It says right on the top of your currency, if you pull out a paper piece of money, it says it's a note. It means that it is, the United States government owes you that much money. And so when money is traded around the world to buy things, it's actually – U.S. debt that's being traded around the world to buy things. So the Chinese, for example, and we've said this before and it's important to understand, the Chinese are huge importers of raw material, particularly from Africa, and huge importers of oil from all over the world. They import almost all of that by paying for it with U.S. debt or dollars in in other words. The result of that is that the Chinese are not about to sink the United States currency because they would destroy their economy in the process. And secondly, there is really no danger of anybody taking over and dominating the world and shutting down the SWIFT system. Even if China and Russia colluded 100%, it would take them decades to come up to the point where they could begin to do that, and it isn't going to happen. There's really no danger there. I guess we can move on to Roger now, unless you want more yeah, say on that.
0: That's great. Now, Roger's got a question on oil and Putin. Um, his first statement was that we were on the air with no commercials. Thanks, Roger. Um, how long will oil prices have to stay up before domestic production increases? And can we and others, excluding Russia, increase production enough to lower the price? 3. Jeff, considering your training as an intelligence officer, do you think there's a chance that Putin will actually use a nuclear weapon? Okay. So, number 2, how long will oil prices have to stay up before domestic production increases and we can and and can we and others inclu- excluding Russia increase production enough to lower the price? Okay, how long? Well, it's already ramping up. Uh, something that is fascinating to watch. I'm looking at oil rig numbers on a regular basis. And for the rest of the world in the last two weeks, oil rig counts went down. And you think about why are oil rig counts going down? And when, when Russia's invading, this shouldn't this be going online because it's Russian oil rigs going down. They're being taken offline because they're not able to sell the oil. And, in the United States, the oil rig count is up, and that's that's huge uh the the fact that uh that we are producing more let me see if I can find the rig data here um, it's uh,
1: it's according according to uh baker Hughes it's at uh three sixty and i'm i'm sorry six fifty and in the United States and stayed steady this week. It takes a little while to come up to speed. It takes a while to actually put more oil and gas rigs in, and the price of oil has just jumped. And it takes a while to get those things in position and start drilling holes in the ground. You're going to see – one thing I did see that I think is very important is existing wells that have the capability of doing further fracking in marginal fields that had been shut down are no longer marginal because of the price of oil. Right, and if the price of oil stays a up.
0: Barrel, that's, that's, I mean, we're gonna see a lot of fracking going on. And yeah. we and, talked and, about something, I don't know, about a month ago, we had a question from John about these relatively large oil companies that were just told by the state of Texas to take a bunch of the acid that they had in the ground out of the ground because it wasn't good to have it stored in the ground, it leads to earthquakes. And I said that could lead to more fracking because you gotta do something with the acid and if you can't put it in the ground, you might as well use it again to frack some more. Um, Now's the time when that's gonna be happening. So how long will will it have to stay up before production increases domestically? It's already happening. There are people right now that are extremely pleased about the price of oil, and they're going out and reopening wells that were either uh, partially shut or fully shut. Uh, they're refracking. They're, it's it's a second wash uh, acid wash where they come back to the same fracking uh, well that they had already been at. and they redo it. They re uh, acid wash it. basically, it's like how a fly eats its food. It spits acid on it, makes a big soup, and slurps it up. That's what we do underground. The acid is at high pressure and very caustic, and it eats through rock, and it turns it into this big soup that it's a lot easier to get the oil out of. We're going to be doing a lot of that. And then this maybe more important question here is how likely is it? What's the chance that Putin will actually use a nuclear weapon?
1: And I've actually looked at that and read a lot on it. And let me give you an example of how to look at this. There's a man who's in the process of taking his neighbor's house by force. It's outside of the jurisdiction of the law. The man is waving a gun around. So far, he's been taking the neighbor's house through physical force of clubs and whatever he's been using. But he has a gun.
0: And he's pointing at it and telling the rest of the world or the rest of the neighborhood that he's got a gun.
1: And he even cocked the gun and dry fired it a couple of times. And now he's got ammunition in it. And is he crazy enough to use the gun? Well, frankly, Vladimir Putin has made a horrible blunder. I mean, a terrible blunder. He, I'm convinced, thought Ukraine would just fold up. Yeah, He thought the U.S. would just fold up and let him take Ukraine. He was convinced that Ukraine was properly part of Russia. He's been saying that for some time, and he thought we would treat it like Crimea. Now he finds himself in a real bind. Yeah, he probably can eventually take Ukraine and probably will eventually take Ukraine because he's committed to it, and if were he to back out right now, I'm sure he wouldn't remain the czar, new czar, new premier of Russia very long. So he's going to continue in. If there's enough resistance, in he may very well do, in essence, what we did at the end of World War II. And if you think it's unthinkable, we did it. We didn't drop a nuclear weapon on Tokyo. We did on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and it took two of them to convince the Japanese to surrender. I really think at this point, That Vladimir Putin, were he to be stymied and his losses rise to a certain point, and he sees his personal survival, his personal being alive, contingent on causing the Ukrainians to surrender, could conceivably use a small, a low-yield nuclear weapon on a medium-sized city in Ukraine just to show that he means business. What does that mean? Would we then turn around and nuke Russia? No, I don't think we would. I don't think because Russia has said if we nuke them, they'll nuke us. It will raise the stakes to a much higher level and frankly, as scary as hell. What do I think the probabilities of that? They're at least fifty-fifty. Yeah, and I know that that's weird. As a matter of fact, I got to ask about the probabilities uh, several weeks, well, weeks, months before, actually, uh, two months before Russia moved into Ukraine. I got asked as a as a intelligence analysts, based on my training and experience, what are the probabilities that Russia is going to physically invade Ukraine? And I said, I would put it at 90%. we said it, and I think he said it on estimate. the air,
0: and people were shocked, why would he do that? You put it in the newsletter. Uh, we had people saying, no, we think he's not, he's just bluffing, he, he, he wasn't bluffing. He was doing all the things that's, it, Putin doesn't bluff. That's, that's something that I think is really important to understand about Putin. When he says he's gonna do something, generally does it um the the thing he talks about afterwards is no i'm not doing it no i'm not doing it no i'm not doing it so if as he's doing it as he's doing it so if he says i'm not going to use nuclear weapons right now get into a bomb shelter because that's this guy he he says i'm going to use it and then when he's actually doing it he says he's not this is that's his bluff is to say i'm not doing it when he is
1: and if you think that's insane and it is insane it's also insane to shell the largest nuclear reactor in Europe.
0: Yeah. But he did it. Yeah.
1: And he set it on fire so that they would surrender it. And now he has control of it. I personally think Vladimir Putin is unhinged. He's, He's separated himself from any but his closest advisors, and even they have to go through quarantine. They have to separate themselves and be in quarantine to get to him. He typically, if you've seen pictures of him meeting with foreign leaders, even his own generals, they sat 30 feet away from him on a long wall because long, he's long so afraid table. of COVID. And this, this is something
0: and, I, w- I want to throw this in there because I saw a joke about this and we need to lighten the conversation slightly. And that is that uh, IKEA is putting out a new Putin dining table that is 45 feet long and about uh, as wide, wa- I think it's like three feet wide. So uh, so that you can entertain your guests in the luxury that they've come to expect from the Kremlin.
1: Yeah, a lot of truth in there. Well, <laughs> so, so the answer, Roger, is there's a distinct possibility. We have used nuclear weapons. He probably looks at that and says, we got away with it. He can get away with it. I don't think he's going to nuke anybody in NATO unless we get into a fight with him, which is, by the way, why... NATO said, We're not doing a no fly zone because if we get in a direct shooting war with Russia,
0: then it gets nuclear and they feel like they're
1: losing. I think there is a very high probability that he would pop some small nukes just to prove he meant business and scare the hell out of us, which would lead to a very, very serious confrontation between the United States and Russia.
0: Uh, What I said several weeks ago prior to the invasion is that if Russia sweeps through Ukraine and takes it in a very short period of time, they are a true threat to the world militarily. They, are, they have the capability of just rolling through Europe. If they get stymied in Ukraine, if Ukraine's able to stop them or prevent them from making major gains in a short period of time, then the modernization that they've been hyping about their military has been false. They're not a threat to Europe except nuclear. And what we're seeing right now is the Russian army behaving very similarly to what the Red Army did. They're just not very coordinated. They're not the branches aren't working well together. Artillery is firing in, in, in advance of a. Of a of a charge by the military and the military is not even in the place to be available to do that. The airstrikes are happening before the they're supposed to, or after they're supposed to the friendly fire incidents on the Russian side have been high. So in a lot of ways, what we're seeing in action right now is the deterioration of Russia from its Soviet heyday. That it's worse off than it was even through all this modernization. He's got portions of his military that are quite elite, uh, but they made some really, really serious blunders. Big, big, big blunders. They bet everything that uh, it was the thaw was going to come late. And the fields are not frozen anymore, and the tanks can't go through the fields if they're not frozen because they just get bogged down.
1: Well, let me give you a little counterpoint here that's a little scary since I'm going to stay on the negative side of things a little bit. The German advance into France in May, 1940 was described as the largest traffic jam in European history, right? They had exactly the same problems. A German historian said that a Rolf Dieter Mueller, it resulted in a 250 kilometer long log jam through the Ardennes that ended 80 kilometers east of the Rhine. The Germans, of course, got there in the end. So this we're paralleling the beginning of World War II in so many, 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 many ways. This is another one. Um, The Germans got bogged down in the early part of their advance in World War II. The Russians are getting bogged down. They will learn from it. Uh, The Germans didn't have a huge army. They did not have a massive army capable of defeating the world at the beginning of World War II. They just had a bigger army than anybody else in Europe. Russia right now has a bigger army and a better equipped and a more modern army than anybody else in Europe. They are in the traffic jam, just like the Germans got into traffic jam. Where we go from here is anybody's guess, but the parallels between the beginning of World War II and what we're seeing here are very, very strong.
0: And and there, uh, there's another follow-up question from Roger, and this is this one is Absolutely on point. Can the oligarchs or anyone else in Russia overthrow Putin? Answer, yes. This is why he cannot stop the invasion, why he can't just stop. What the sanctions are designed to do is target his supporters. So if you go back to Russia being a feudal system, it is not a democracy, it is not a capitalism, it is, it is feudal, it is, there's a king That isn't called a king. And there's a bunch of dukes and earls and such that aren't called dukes and earls. They're called oligarchs. And if enough of their pride and joy is taken away from them, enough of the benefits that they get for being an oligarch is taken away from them, then yes, they could turn and and make a coup against Putin. Uh, and there are people in the Senate, uh, Lindsey Graham was just saying somebody needs to take him out in Russia and so on, Uh, but the reality is that he's got really, really good security, and the closest to him are ultra-loyal. They're the same people that have been closest to him for the last 20 years. He doesn't have a problem with his inner circle, and that's really what would be needed to knock him out. He's distributed power to those that are loyal to him, and imprison those that aren't. So we really can't count on the Russian people uprising over Ukraine and putting Putin out of power. That's, it it would sure be nice, and I would love to be proven wrong on that, but I don't see that at all in the cards. The likelihood of that is probably 1%. Um, There are a lot of oligarchs that are outside of Russia right now, that are talking out against the war because they're outside of Russia right now and they're losing access to their money. Um, and that's pretty important.
1: Uh, Roger had a, said that we were on the air and then the second half of the news plays, we missed, they missed part of the swift conversation, so they're kind of at a loss to what we were talking about there. There were some good articles on recently is whether the Chinese will ever overtake us. We talked about that. It's not likely to happen.
0: Yeah, and this this is kind of important to think about because there are predictions that their GDP will surpass ours in a few years, you know, eight to 10 years. The changes that they're making right now, the expectation that they want to have a 5.5% growth rate of GDP, I expect ours to be roughly that, maybe a little higher this year. Which means that their growth rate is the same as ours, which means that our economy being bigger at a gro- bigger growth rate, it means that they're losing ground to us. Uh, if you have five percent of hundred dollars or five percent of fifty dollars, uh, the hundred dollar one is is making a. Uh, it, it's not going to get caught up to. So what what's happening in China on the innovative side? And I mentioned this the first hour. Innovation requires some things. You know, these are things that economists have been studying for a long, long time. How do you innovate? How, how do you make something new that didn't exist before, that improves life, improves the ability to manufacture, or improves the world somehow? How, where does that come from? It doesn't come from very wealthy people often. Uh, it doesn't come from extremely successful people often. It comes from people before they're successful. And this is how they become successful. And we have a really good system in the United States of supporting that. When someone has something that is absolutely new and that is gonna improve our lives, we're gonna buy it from them. And they get to reap the benefit of their creation. China was copying that. They had Nobel Prize winners for the last 20 years. Uh, there was a statement in the econ- in the. Uh, in the group of economists that have won the Nobel Prize in economics, that all 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 you need to be independently wealthy as an economist is to win the Nobel Prize and then spend your time in China, go and do talks in China. Because they were hiring Nobel Prize winners to come across and try to teach them how to be better as an economy, how to revitalize and innovate and bring their education levels up so that they could do more and better. What we've seen in the past two and a half years, basically since the trade war started, um, is a reversal of that, a massive clampdown on innovation, on the people, on on the very methodology to give payment to the people that come up with new ways of doing things. And that's going to have to factor into any analysis on the long-term growth rate in China. What we're seeing at a massive level, this is not a little thing, this is just huge, is companies are not building factories in China right now. There are more factories being made in China by the Chinese, but... Vietnam and the United States and Germany and, and factories are being built all over the place and at a at a massive growth rate in the number of factories on the planet, but it doesn't include China. It's very similar to, a, it's kind of a long drawn out process in a similar way to what's happened in Russia in the past week. You're not doing business in Russia. Well, this has been a two and a half year and it's not quite as severe as Russia yet but all it takes is Xi Jinping continuing the policies that he has now, and we're not going to want to build factories in China. This is in boardrooms all over the world, all over the United States. When someone says, let's build a new factory, we're making money on this, and we need to ramp up production, China's not even on the list of places to build. It's too dangerous for your intellectual property. It's too dangerous for the corporate and governmental environment right now?
1: Well, let me talk about productivity. Okay. We had a preliminary indication of productivity earlier, but we've had the official productivity now released by the Labor Department for uh, U.S. worker productivity growth in the fourth quarter of last year. It was up 6.6%. Output was up 9.1% hours worked, we're up 2.4%. That is absolutely earth-shaking. That is profound. And I it, it's one of those things that probably won't ever make the headlines. We mentioned that in the newsletter. But it's critical to understand this. The GDP of a nation is the number of hours worked per worker times the number of workers times the productivity of those workers, Two things happened that, and and we also got a question, by the way, how do we connect all the dots here? There's a couple of dots that are worth connecting here. Number one, we don't have to grow our population by 6.6% in the fourth quarter to increase our productivity by 6.6% because we just did, which is really impressive. The second thing is, Bear in mind when you're looking at the debt, and, and we had an article questioning, they'd look at the size of the debt and it's terrible and, and it's awful and whatever. We had 7% inflation last year. That meant the debt of the United States shrunk by 7%. Let me say that again. The debt that you see at the end of the United States takes 7% off of that at the end of the year. It takes 7% off of that because we are. We had inflation, so if you are, if you owe thirty trillion dollars, and you have seven percent inflation, you just got seven percent off the bill. Um. And it's okay. We came back in in the middle of the Labor Department productivity statement. Okay, so you're we're back on the air again.
0: All right. Okay.
1: So it it is crucial to understand that we are growing our productivity at a rate that is phenomenally faster than that of China then you throw in a second issue i carefully looked at this and as of the last data we have is 2019 or 2020 at that point the U, the average us worker was four times as productive as the average chinese worker and our productivity is growing significant. their productivity is stuck at this point it grew for a while pretty fast. It is leveled off. Now, again, when we talk about China, this is an important thing to recognize. There's something that we had in the Army called a SWAG, a scientific wild-ass guess. And uh, that's pretty much what we have to do with China's economics because they report what they want to report. But it's pretty clear when we when all the estimates come together That in the United States, a worker, a given average worker in the United States, produces about four times the economic output of an average worker in China. That's number one. Number two, while their productivity grew tremendously when they had a free market system and the government wasn't running things like they were a dictatorship, it has leveled off since and doesn't seem to be going anywhere at this point. Ours is still growing at a very, very high speed. Right, That is fundamental and earth-shaking.
0: Their GDP grew at an annualized rate last year of 4%. Ours was faster than that, much faster than that. Um, They're experiencing the issues that happen when you build things for people and expect them to keep coming back, but you've been really rude to the people that you've been building for. People go elsewhere. Price is not everything. Although if you, if you go to buy a mask right now for COVID purposes, you go online to buy a mask, you're likely to buy a Chinese product. If you go to buy a drone, it may be an American company that's making it, but you're buying it in China. If you're buying a phone, it's either gonna be made in South Korea or in China. That's changing, it just takes time and they're still making the assumptions in a lot of the analyses that, that we read that China is going to be making decisions that will cause its customers to want to stay with them. And what we're really seeing is the opposite of that, is that this a lot a lot of little decisions being made at the Chinese level, very low level, which is part of the attitude being given to them from up high. Of we are better than everybody else, and they they don't appreciate us enough, so we can take what we want out of the stuff that we're building for these other people. They're paying us to build this, but we're going to take some of it anyway.
1: And they made another blunder. Z made it, what I think is a terrible blunder when he said we have unlimited support yeah. for Russia. Yeah. Um.
0: That's a What happened
1: face. is the opinion. The very, very negative opinion about Russia around the world has now been contaminated over into China. What's more, the banks in China, although they've been ordered to support Russia, support the Russian economy, are clearly dragging their feet because, very frankly, they don't want to take assets in rubles when, ruble, when the ruble is likely to collapse to zero because then they get in trouble with the central government for making bad loans. Uh, for whatever reason, China has anchored itself to, or tied itself to a sinking ship, which is Russia, and they're, they're, gonna, they're feeling a lot of pain on that, and they'll probably feel more pain on that going into the future, because it, it is this important to remember, the Chinese do not want to take control of the world, they want stability. Stability is the core thing that the Chinese government and the Chinese people want. Stability means having access to raw materials. One of the reasons they want the South China Sea so badly is there's a lot of oil there. And they want to take control of the South China Sea, a big chunk of terrain, and includes a bunch of little islands that they're making. Why? Because there's a lot of oil there. And they are very, very concerned about the fact that they're dependent on the import of oil into their country to keep their economy stable. Um, yeah, things look pretty bad in a sense in that Russia could pop a nuke at any time uh russia is behaving irrationally but it's certainly not as bad as it could be and one of the fundamental things is is this our coast down and we may or may not be on the air at any given point to understand is the united states economy is still picking up speed we're still accelerating we have reached effectively full employment. We didn't mention the fact that there were 678,000 new workers hired in February. We, we, United States employers hired new workers net of layoffs of 678,000. The, the consensus estimate was 440. Uh, that is, that 678 net includes the fact that we laid off 210,000, which by the way is the typical month's layoffs uh, or week layoff that we saw before the pandemic, we have the unemployment rate is down to 3.8%, which by the way, according to the Federal Reserve, 3.8 is full employment. In other words, everybody who wants a job pretty much with rare exception can get a job at this point. We are literally hitting capacity in the United States and are still accelerating. There's some danger in that, obviously, of inflation, and we're seeing, I don't think the inflation is being generated by that. And let me explain why I don't think inflation is being generated by the labor situation. In February, the average worker's hourly wage went up one cent. One cent. In other words, we don't have something that happened back in the late 70s and early 80s, which is called a wage price spiral. Prices would go up, wages would go up, That would give people more money to buy more things, which meant prices would go up and then wages would go up. We're not seeing that at all. The fact that wages are not going up as fast as inflation may be painful for the people who want to buy things, but it is an indication that we are not in uncontrolled runaway inflation. External causes of inflation happen. The war in Ukraine is an external cause of inflation. The pandemic was an external cause of inflation, but those external causes go away. Inflation gets out of control when wages are going up faster than inflation, and they aren't. So I, I want to say something here, If presuming people are still able to listen. The United States is in great shape economically. It's very frankly, in my professional 40 years of observing, observing the United States economy, and I hate to say this, but the uh, years before that 40 years, uh, the decade or so when I was uh, observing it from a different perspective in intelligence, the 50 years I've been watching the United States economy, this is the best shape I have ever seen it in by far. And there's going to be a lot of people, particularly for political purposes, who are going to tell you everything is terrible and we need to throw everybody out. And start all over again or something to that effect, which, by the way, the extreme right and left agree on. They just don't agree on what the start all over again is. Um, The fact is we are the strongest nation in the world with the strongest military force in the world, the best trained military force in the world, the wealthiest nation in the world. And right now there is no viable competition on the horizon. That's my bottom line economic, military, and social, sociological analysis of what's going on. So I would say in the short term, look out for some bumps. We're going to have price rises. We're going to have more inflation. Why are we going to have more inflation? Commodities are being strained by the war. There's not enough commodities, and we Americans want to buy a bunch of stuff. If you want to cut inflation, no problem. Stop buying so much stuff. Yeah, and but I inflation will go down. But I want yeah, to know, and that we the happen deal. to be the wealthiest country in the world, so we can afford to buy this stuff.
0: Yeah, and those of you that are being pinched by this, just recognize that you're not being pinched as near nearly as bad as some of the other places on the planet that don't have the kind of uh, income that we have, don't have the kind of social safety nets and so on. Um, just, just you know, we mentioned this last hour. Uh, If you're in fertilizer, if you're in farming, the war is actually going to do good things for your budget. The prices are going to go up. And this is maybe just as important as the other things that we have been looking at. You you touched on this briefly. Um, Average hourly wages in February went up. That should be scary to a lot of people. That average hourly wages went up, but one they cent. went up one penny. <laughs> one penny. Um, it's it's so it's not scary. So wh- why why am I bringing this up? Because people keep asking me, "Is this like the 1970s and 80s? Are we in a wage price spiral of inflation to the end of time? Are we going to see this just keep going?" The answer to that is no, these prices will go up and they're specific prices. When you have a wage price spiral, everything's going up. Right now, soybean prices are down. You know, and you wouldn't see that in a wage price spiral and that's pretty important to, to think about. Um, why, why am I talking about um, lumber prices going down and soybean prices going down? Because we don't have systemic inflation. We have inflation that's being caused by a shortage of specific goods. We're averaging it all out to say this is inflationary. In a wage price spiral, you don't have to average it out because everybody's getting paid more. They can spend more on more things, on all things. So all prices go up. At the end of all of this, when we're coming out of this, some things that we expect to see is that fertilization, fertilizers, a big chunk of the world market for fertilizers comes from Russia. Well, there's a way of chemically producing fertilizer. Um, And there's a great book on this, by the way, I don't know if you've read it, The Alchemy of Air, where we basically take the nitrogen that's in the air, 70% of the air that we breathe is nitrogen. We can't use it at all in our lungs or anywhere else unless unless it's been hit by lightning. And then you have nitrogen that's bioavailable for fertilizer purposes or for making gunpowder or explosives or all kinds of other things that you can use nitrogen for in a bioavailable way. Well, we learned how to make it using electricity at the turn of the 20th century. We've known how to do this for about 120 years, and we're we're better at it than we used to be. But because of the way the world structure and demand for this was, it was a very even demand. Expect the fertilizer companies in the United States to start making some big profits. Um, there, there was a disaster, I don't know, getting close to 10 years ago at this point in West Texas, the, the city of West, where a fertilizer tank blew up. Um. why am I bringing that up? Because the people in West are likely to make a lot of money this year off of their fertilizer plant. We have fertilizer plants all over our country that produce fertilizer, and we can ramp up production there just like we can with fracking. We can change from growing as much corn as we are, partly because it's subsidized because it goes into the gasoline. As we're using less gasoline because the cars are getting more efficient and we're getting more electric cars, there's this thought in the farming community of how do we replace this income that's coming from 10% of the fuel being from ethanol that comes from corn? Well, this is a great opportunity to look around and say, hey, let's plant some wheat uh, because the Russians even after the war, are likely not to be selling a lot of wheat to the rest of the world. This is important. Uh, the 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 dynamic of trade across the the world has just changed. It's it's not changed massively. It's not as big a change as the pandemic, but in in, w- in many ways, it's as permanent. What Russia has done has re- is removing itself from the world economy, and there's some great articles uh, written on this in the European press, where they basically are saying, in a in a simple format, we can't allow Russia to attack our way of life while benefiting from it. And that seems to be the consensus across Europe right now. It's the consensus ar- across the planet. Is you can't just let people invade anymore. We can't do that. And the fact that they've done it multiple times before, I mean, when you look at the number of invasions that have happened in the last 20 years, they're mostly from Russia. Uh, we did some. We invaded Afghanistan and we invaded Iraq. But we're not there anymore. We we left, and we left because we didn't want to stay there forever. Russia's willing to stay in Georgia and in Azerbaijan and in Ukraine and anywhere else that it can find a foothold. And the history of Russia is is either expanding or collapsing. Russia's on the cusp of collapsing, which is why it's trying to do what historically it's done in those cases. But we're living in a different world than we were then. Uh, Sweden and Finland, who are not part of NATO, who have always had a very... um, quiet relationship with Russia, except for when Finland was invaded by the Soviet Union. But they basically said, we're neutral on everything, don't be upset with us, we're right next to you, and we'd rather keep you appeased than join in the alliance against you. They're providing weapons, direct weapons support to Ukraine. NATO has been given a new purpose again, by Russia. Russia has reinforced the obligations of NATO far more than our presidents have, and uh, President Trump or President Biden or President Obama or Bush, all saying to all of the members, hey, you gotta meet your defense requirements, this is a treaty and you're in violation, you're not paying enough. Well, Germany's doing it now, and France is doing it now, and Spain is doing it now. There's a lot being spent on war right now which then there's, again, potential for profit-taking in that area for, for people making money. Not that that's a great reason to make money, but when when one side is building up its military for defense and one is building it up for conquest, you can see that defense is a better reason to make a profit than conquest. Um, but that's just ethics. Yeah. If you'd like to talk to us off the air, we have voicemail waiting
1: locally at Or
0: toll-free 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com, where you can read our newsletter, sign up for the newsletter, send us messages, listen to the radio program. You can also go to any podcast provider for that. You can also email us directly at jeff or jake at tpwc.com, and we read those things and answer them, as you can kind of hear from the way we've been on the radio this this week. Uh, we appreciate all of your extra hard work and listening to us through static and, and black holes this week. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.